Welcome to our Crosspoint members. Welcome to our online audience. We're glad to have you with us today. We are looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going through what we call the story, the major narratives of the Bible. Last week we looked at the death of Jesus Christ, and He did die. He died for our sins. This week we're looking at His resurrection. See, He didn't stay dead. He claimed to be God, and He proved it with what? The resurrection. And He's promised a resurrection for you and a resurrection for me. Now, if Jesus really did raise Himself from the dead, then that means everything else Jesus said is true. Amen? Everything about your life, everything about my life, everything about the way we should live, everything about the future events to come, that place called heaven and that place called hell. Everything is true. But I want to ask a question. Did Jesus really rise from the grave? And can it be proven? Would, would the testimony of the eyewitnesses that we're about to read about hold up in a court of law today? Would it pass the smell test, the acid test, the legal test, if you will? Uh, you know, most lawyers, for some reason, really like lawyer jokes, don't they, Patty? And one of my favorite lawyer jokes, one of the things I think about lawyers is they, they don't take the jokes too seriously. They see them sort of as a caricature, and, and so they, they laugh just like everybody else. But one of my favorite jokes is about how Satan comes into this young lawyer's office. He, he's a brand new lawyer. He's just starting his practice, and Satan says, hey, look, I can make it and arrange it so that you'll become very, very rich. I can arrange it so you never lose a case. Clients will flock to you. Your partners will love you. You'll live to be a hundred years of age and become the most famous lawyer of all time. But I will require the souls of your wife and your children and your children's children. And the lawyer thought for a moment. He goes, all right, what's the catch? Lawyers. Well, there was this guy who did not make a pact with the devil, but he became the most successful lawyer of all time. Do you know his name? Sir Lionel, no, not Perry Mason, Sir Lionel Lucku. You can Google his name later, don't do it right now, but you'll find that his name appears in the Guinness Book of World Records. He was a defense attorney, and he won 245 cases, murder cases, not just any case, not jaywalking cases, murder cases in a row. This guy understood the law. He is the most successful lawyer. He was brilliant. He had savvy. He had analytical powers. He knew how to punch holes in seemingly airtight cases. He knew the right questions to ask. He understood reliable evidence. He was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth, and he served as a member of the highest court in his country. Now we're asking the question, did Jesus Christ rise from the grave? Wouldn't it be great if we could ask Sir Lionel Lucku what he thought about the evidence surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You know what the good news this morning is? We can Sir Lionel Lucku 
examine the resurrection of Jesus based on all the evidence as if he were in a court of law. And here's what he wrote after years of study. He said, I say unequivocally that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. That from the greatest lawyer in history. That's pretty good proof. Without the resurrection, guys, we would not be here, right? Right? I mean, we just wouldn't be here. I mean, if there's no resurrection, what are we even doing here? There's no Christianity. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 17. If Christ did not rise, your faith is futile and your sins have not yet been forgiven. But if Jesus did rise from the grave, then it makes a very real difference in the way we live. We better listen to Jesus, right, if he really did rise himself from the grave. And Jesus said himself in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Now, I want to look at four E's that establish the resurrection. Four E's. Have you got your notes? The first E, let's let that first E stand for Early accounts. Early accounts. What I mean by that is back in space, time, and history. Go back historically. Some of the most early accounts of Jesus' life talk about his resurrection. Many write off the resurrection as being that of a legend or mythology or you know a fairy tale once about a time, far away place. The Bible's not written like that at all. But if you're going to talk about legend, and legends have arisen, right? It takes generations, though, for that to happen. For something that may start off very, very small to grow in this huge legend can take generations. The New Testament writings, however, were written during the same time in which the events to have taken place, or claimed to have taken place, could have been checked out by eyewitness testimony. For example... If it's going to pass the acid test, and let's say uh, I tell you a story that I have a green cow that produces chocolate milk living in my backyard, and not just any chocolate milk, the best chocolate milk you ever drink, and you say, come on, Bruce, this is impossible, that there's no such thing as a green cow, and green cows don't produce chocolate milk. Well, I say, well, come on over to my house, and you go over to my house, and you open up my gate, and you go in my backyard, and there you see a green cow. Well, that catches your attention, doesn't it? But you're already a skeptic. You're thinking, no, no, there's got to be a trick to this, and you go over, and you check out the fur, on the, the hair on the, on the cow, and you check it out, and you say, I've got to get this analyzed. This has got to be some kind of a dye. It's a good dye, but it's probably a dye. And so you have it taken to a, a lab, and they check it out, and they say, no, there's no dye in this. This is in the DNA of this cow. It's, it's green. And that checks out. And you go, all right, well, here's the real proof. Squirt, 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 squirt. You fill that thing up, and man, you've got to admit, that's not only good chocolate milk, that's the best chocolate milk I've ever had. And now you're what? A believer. Why? Eyewitness testimony, empirical evidence. You've checked this out for yourself. And now you tell your wife and your kids and your, your neighbors and your friends, there's this guy I know in Whittier. That guy's got a green cow 
produces chocolate milk, not just any chocolate milk, but the best chocolate milk you've ever drank. And they all come over and they check it out for themselves. And Eyewitness News, Channel 7's there, and they're filming this thing, and they're checking it out. And, and then the LA Times tells the New York Times, and the New York Times tells CNN, and CNN tells Fox News. And it goes around the world, and you got people in China and in Russia and around the world believing there is a man in Woodier with a green cow that produces chocolate milk. Why? Because of eyewitness testimony. But that eyewitness testimony has got to be what? Credible, and it's got to check out, and it's got to take place during the generation in which claim. Let's say I was to write a book about my green cow with chocolate milk. It passes all the tests. It would hold up in a court of law. And I write about my, book, my, my cow and I want to put it in the library, and because it does check out, it goes into the facts section, not the fiction section. See, the, see that? This is not a story. This is not a myth. This is not a legend. This would really happen. That's what would take place. I'm saying it's no, no difference for someone to come to this earth and say, I'm God. You might as well claim to be a hard-boiled egg, Right? If you claim to be God, you better back that up with something. There better be some proof. And what was Jesus' proof? The miracles. Lame could walk, the blind could see, the deaf could hear, the dead were raised. And ultimately he said, I will rise from the dead. Come back here in three days, that tomb will be open, that tomb will be empty. And if it is, guess what? Everything he says is true. It backs up his claims. And then there better be some eyewitness testimony. And then the eyewitnesses say, it's true, it's true. And then Jesus appears to other people and more and more. Now it's written in the book. And it doesn't go into the fiction section. It goes into the facts section. True events. That's how we know. Early accounts. Talk about this. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, I pass on to you what I received, which is of the greatest importance. Well, Paul, what's so great? That Christ died. He didn't swoon. He didn't appear to be dead. He really died on the cross. Roman soldiers know how to execute. No one came off of a cross alive, I guarantee you. He died on that cross. He was buried in a tomb. And he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. Death, burial, resurrection. We call that the gospel. That little creed right there became the, the earliest of Christians could recite that very early on. And scholars have been able to date that creed back as early as 24 to 36 months from the resurrection itself. Those early accounts talk about this stuff. In the year 1844... A historian by the name of Julius Miller challenged his fellow historians. Actually, he put a challenge out to the whole world if anyone could find even a single example of legend developing that fast anywhere in history. And to this day, not a single person has been able to do so. And so early accounts are a strong proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be because of the resurrection. Number two, let's let that second E stand for empty tomb. We got early accounts, but then we've got an empty tomb. The empty tomb where Jesus was laying. Luke chapter 24, 1 through 3. On the first day of the week, this is Resurrection Sunday. Jesus died on Friday, Saturday, early in the morning, Sunday morning, Resurrection Day. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. 
What are the women doing there? Well, on Friday, if you recall, it was almost sunset when the Sabbath begins. And on the Sabbath, you can't do work. And it was the women's job, and in this case, along with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, to prepare the body for burial. And they were going through the process of wrapping the folds, and they poured in this mixture of spices of myrrh and aloes and mixed it with water. And as they would do the wraps around, kind of like the mummification, they would never mummify the head. They would have a napkin over that. But as they were doing that, they just kind of ran out of time. And so they think, okay, after the Sabbath is over, First thing, what we'll do Sunday morning, we'll get up and we'll go finish the embalming process. And so they're on their way to what? The tomb. To do what? Finish the embalming process. What do they expect to find when they get there? A body. Are you getting this? See, even the women, even the disciples, even those that claimed to believe did not believe or fully understand there would be a resurrection. Jesus talked about it. Yet three days, you know, Jonah was in the belly of the well, or fish, three days, three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the earth. And then, boom, up from the grave all will arise. Well, you know what? They're going looking for a body. But when they get there, do they find a body? No, no body. The stone's been rolled away, and that term for rolled away means someone grabbed it and just kind of threw it like a frisbee. It was in a totally different place. It wasn't just right out front of the, the entrance. Remember, they didn't bury you in the ground. They carved out a cave. And then they would roll a big, huge 2,000-pound stone or more in front of it to keep grave robbers from coming in and stealing. Well, that stone was completely off of its you know, little tunnel, the little track that it would go in. It was just in a whole other place. And, and that tells you this is not legend, this is not fairy tales, because legends, you try to build the people up. Oh, they were in anticipation of the resurrection. No, they're saying they didn't even believe he would rise from the grave. Another proof that this book is not a phony book. It just tells it the way it was. Now, i got a question for you. How did Jesus get out of that tomb? There's only three possibilities. His friends took the body. His enemies took the body. Or he rose from the grave just like he said he would. Let's examine the friends of Jesus. Where were the friends of Jesus when Jesus was being crucified? You remember where they all just sort of took off? And they ran and they hid? What did Peter do three times that night? Denied, denied, denied. And then to emphasize the point, you know, he, you know, obscenity, cuss word, you know, he would just even like accentuate, I am not a follower of Jesus. The only one that stood by his side was the women and John. Everyone else ran. And the next time we find them, we find them in a room together, and it, the writer emphasizes, and the door was locked. Why do you lock your door? Well, they're associated with Jesus. They killed him. They might be coming looking to kill us. They're afraid. Now, where are they going to get the courage, these fishermen by trade, to go to a tomb Guarded by Roman soldiers, there was a guard of four. Remember, the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin court that ordered Pilate to crucify Jesus, said, 
you know what, you better guard that tomb because these apostles may come, or these disciples of his may come back later, steal the body and make it appear that Jesus rose from the grave, and the latter case would be worse than the first. And Pilate says, all right, guys, you've got a guard. That'd be a Roman guard of four. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. And Roman soldiers were trained in standing their ground with a 10-foot circumference. What is a fisherman trained in? Fishing, not fighting. Where are these fishermen going to get the strength and the courage and the ability to overcome four Roman guards able to stand their ground? They're not going to be able to do it. As a matter of fact, they were afraid to do it. They wouldn't have been able to do it because of the Roman soldiers. They were placed there to prevent that very thing from happening. So the friends of Jesus couldn't do it. Well, let's examine the enemies of Jesus. Well, maybe the enemies took the body of Jesus. No, 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 no. The evidence says we want the body in there. We don't want it stolen. It would defeat their purpose to have the body outside unless they went in and took it. Perhaps what they wanted to do was go to the tomb on the third day, roll the stone away, take the body of Jesus out, maybe take it down to the marketplace where everybody would be, and say, hey, here's your God, here's your Jesus, here's your Messiah, here's your King. You know, kick, kick his body around the streets a little bit, drag it around, you know, with a horse or something. And Christianity never would have gotten started if they could have produced a body on the third day. But they couldn't do it. So that only leaves one other possibility. Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. I am God. Come back in three days. I won't be here. And he raised himself by his own power. Only God can do that. Friends couldn't. Enemies wouldn't. So we got the early accounts. We've got the empty tomb. But let's let that third E in our outline stand for eyewitness testimony. And eyewitness testimony is very, very powerful if it is reliable. And let's look at the reliability of those testifying. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 5 through 8, Paul will write, He appeared to Peter. Peter seems to be the leader of the group. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than, watch this, did you know that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people all at once? 500 people! Someone says, well, I, I read one guy that tried to explain this verse away. He said they were all having a mass delusion. Can you imagine that? We're all having the same hallucination all at the same time, thinking we're looking and seeing Jesus. I mean, that'd be kind of like me walking up to you and saying, hey, how'd you like the dream I had last night? What do you mean? Well, yeah, how'd you like the dream I had? You don't know what I dreamt. And we can't all hallucinate the same thing. Now, these 500 guys, they said, we saw all at the same time. And Paul says, most of whom are still living to this day. Now, some have died, but for the most part, they're still alive. If you don't believe me and what I'm telling you, you know these people, they live in your community. They're your neighbors. They're your businessmen and women. They're, they're your friends. Go check it out. Here's their names, addresses, and phone numbers. Well, maybe not the phone number part, but you get the idea. 
Paul says, check it out for yourselves. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to who? Lowly me, the apostle Paul also. Talk about a change in Paul. Paul was a Christian killer and now he's a Christian maker. That's evidence right there that something really transpired. He saw the risen Savior. Jesus appeared to 12, 12 different times over a 40-day period of time to over 515 witnesses. He appeared to both women and men. He appeared to individuals and groups. He appeared indoors. He appeared outdoors. He appeared to skeptics like Thomas. He appeared to believers. He ate with people. Why is that important? Because some people might be thinking, you know, what, what if you only had one encounter with Jesus after the resurrection? Remember, Jesus fed the disciples on, the, on, the, on shore some fish, and, and they ate together. And they go, man, did I really see Jesus? After he left, you'd probably be going, wow, let me question myself. This is just insane. Did Jesus really appear? And they go, yeah, there, there's his plate. You know, there, there's the leftover bones from the fish. He ate that. He appeared, and, and they believed it. There was one skeptic named Thomas. We mentioned him. He says, I will not believe. You know, all the others are trying to explain. He really appeared. He really rose from the grave. I will not believe until I put my finger in his hands and my hand in his side. And then one day, Thomas shows up on time and Jesus shows up and walks up to Thomas and says, Thomas, here I am. Come on. Put your fingers. Put your hand. And Thomas never does it. He just falls to the ground and says, My Lord and my God. And he died. He spent the rest of his life claiming he saw the risen Savior, and he died somewhere in southern India. And they said, You stop talking about that risen Savior. We're going to kill you. And they killed him. I can't stop talking. And he was the most skeptical one of the group. Now, I've never been to a, a jury trial. Matter of fact, I've been called for jury duty about five or six times, and I never make it past that little box thing where they ask you the questions. Once they find out I'm a preacher, they say, ah, we don't want this guy. Then why do you even call me? But I've never heard of a jury trial. Let's just say the resurrection's on trial, and they bring these 515 witnesses. Just say 500 of them. And they're all saying what? We saw him, we saw him, we saw him. And you cross-examine them for, let's just say, 15 minutes apiece. You're looking at like 128 hours of testimony. And you're on the jury and you're hearing reliable people, stand-up citizens in your community. These are not flaky folks. These are the real deal. And they're saying, he rose from the grave. Do you think... As a member of the jury, you'd walk away saying, oh, I wonder if that really happened. 500 witnesses all claiming to have seen Jesus? Oh, that's powerful, powerful testimony. One more E, and then we'll leave it to you. The emergence of the church. The church just skyrocketing right after this huge event. Look at what happened to the disciples alone after the crucifixion of Jesus. They're despondent. They've kind of lost their way. They're dejected. They're hiding. They fled. Peter denies three times. They're all saying, it's over. It's over. It's over. Man, we put our faith in this guy. And boy, he sure looked like the one. He did all the miracles. And oh, they're just thinking it's all over. 
But after the resurrection and Jesus shows up to these guys, they change completely. A complete 180. And, and here's what Peter says to a group of people, a massive group gathered on the day of Pentecost. And Peter stands up and he says with a loud voice to the crowd, God has raised this Jesus to life. Not death, but life. And we're all what? Witnesses to that fact. Well, he'd make a good witness, wouldn't he? We saw with our own eyes, it's a fact. He rose from the grave. Though, see, he was so convincing. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day alone. He was able to convince 3,000 people on his testimony alone that day that Jesus rose from the grave. We saw it. We know it's true. And we're willing to die for it. And Peter would later on, after he was an old man. And Jesus told him ahead of time, you're not going to die till you're old, but Peter, you're going to die for me. And so, with boldness, Peter would go into the temple and he would preach and the Sanhedrin would call him out on occasion. And one occasion they whipped him and they beat him and they put him in prison. And they say, now don't you talk about Jesus anymore or we're going to kill you. And you know what Peter said? Hey man, do what you got to do. Do what you got to do. This is the same group that just killed Jesus like 50 days earlier. Do what you got to do. I cannot help but speak what I have seen and what I have heard. John will say, I've handled, I've touched him later on in 1 John 1. It's the real deal, folks. Critics will say, well, wait a second. There's been religious fanatics for years. There's been crazy people that have died for their faith. I mean, can you say World Trade Towers, you know? World Trade Center? Those were crazy nuts. They were promised something that, you know, paradise of some kind. And so, yeah, you're going to have people dying for their faith. This is nothing unusual with Peter and the apostles and others. No, there's a huge difference between what the apostles did and what the terrorists did. You see, the terrorists, they had heard a message from a convincing guru or whatever you want to call him, imam, and they believed it and they bought into the story. But these 12 guys, they were in a very unique position to know if what they were about to die for was real and true. Because they had seen firsthand Jesus risen from the grave. It's one thing to die for something you believe in, but it's quite another to die for something you really know happened or it didn't happen. And nobody dies for a lie. Nobody allows themselves to be tortured for something that's not true. Nobody allows their family to go through pain and agony and torture of the first century Christians, unless it really, really happened. They knew it, and they all died for it. And so when you put all this evidence together, let's wrap this up, all right? When you put it all together, uh, just like Sir Lionel Lucku, it forms a very powerful equation. Let's put it on the screen, Case. Early accounts plus... Eyewitness testimony, plus an empty tomb, plus the emergence of the church, and the change in the apostles, 
equals overwhelming evidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely true. And if Jesus was raised, that has tremendous implications on your life and mine, doesn't it? If this is true, we've got to be different. There's got to be a hope of that place called heaven. Every founder of every other religion is in their grave. Only Jesus has an empty tomb. Confucius in the grave, Buddha in the grave, Muhammad in the grave. The only one that's not is Jesus Christ. And so, who are you going to trust to rescue you from the grave? A bunch of dead guys or Jesus? My trust is in Jesus, not the dead guys. You go to Jesus' tomb, it's open. It's empty. That's my God. That's the one that I'm going to die for if I have to. But you know, Jesus calls very few people to die for him. You know what he asks most of us to do? Live for him. Talk about him. Share your faith with others. That's what the apostles did. and They gave up their lives doing it. I suggest that you put your trust in the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Amen? Let's pray it. Heavenly Father, thank you for dying for us. But thank you for not staying dead. Thank you for rising from the grave. See, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, and I believe with all my heart that he did, that means heaven is real. But that also means hell is real, because he talked about both. Actually, he talked more about hell than he did heaven. And so you need to ask yourself this morning, am I ready to face Jesus if I were to die today? You know, if you are, the Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those that love him. Do you love Him this morning? Are you looking forward to heaven? I hope you are. I I certainly am. On my best days, I still look forward to heaven because it does get better than this. On my worst days, I still look forward to heaven because it does get better than this. Father, we're so grateful for the truthfulness of the resurrection of Your Son. And because Jesus was resurrected, we will be resurrected too. Open the eyes of the blind this morning that don't understand this truth, that they too can see the truthfulness of the resurrection, so they too can spend eternity in heaven with all of us. Now here's the deal. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter got up and he said to the multitude, Jesus was raised from the dead, they said, what do we need to do? We believe this. Peter said, repent, repent. And be baptized, putting your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. See, that's how you identify with Jesus. Remember, Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised. And you and I, when we come to Christ, we die to the old person. We're buried in a watery grave, but just as Jesus didn't stay buried, we don't stay under the water. And we're raised to walk in newness of life. The Bible describes this event as no less than being born again. And that's how we identify with Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, let today be your day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.